Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount, with big ups to my pal Rizza, the presiding genius over the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. There have been a lot of books this year dealing with Donald Trump in his final days, months, really his final year in the White House, and all the chaos, calamity, near cataclysm that resulted. You got Mike Bender's book, there's Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig, and of course, Bob Woodward and Bob Costa, that one word title that says it all. Peril. All these books talking about Trump and the threat to democracy that he posed and still poses. All books you should read, for sure, if you want to understand where we've been and where we're going. But none of these books were more telling or more compelling about Trump and the threat that he posed and poses than a new tome just came out, an insider account that illuminates an earlier phase in the Trump administration a book that deals with Donald Trump as a foreign policy president, Donald Trump's adventures and misadventures on the world stage, and the Ukraine scandal that led to Trump's first impeachment and was a vivid omen of what we would see just a couple years later when Trump attempted flagrantly to subvert American democracy in the 2020 election and in its aftermath leading up to the insurrection on January 6th. The name of this book is There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. And I'm pleased to have with us on the show today, its author, the one and only Fiona Hill. The state of our union is contested. We're at one of those junctures where action is necessary. And if we stand by and just watch the way things are unfolding, it'll be too late to do anything about it as we see our democracy slip away. From the moment that Fiona Hill grabbed the world's attention, by appearing as a whistleblower in the House impeachment hearings against Donald Trump around that Ukraine scandal, everyone could tell on the basis of her bearing, her accent, her obvious extraordinary intelligence, that this was a woman who was quite remarkable and probably had a pretty remarkable tale to tell about her life. She told part of it in the opening statement that she did that day, but after watching her testify, you couldn't help but want to know more. And that is a big part of the story that Hill tells in her book, There's Nothing For You Here. Her rise, from deep, deep in the English working class in Northeast England, with no strings to pull, no chits to cash in, no family connections, and very little money. Extraordinary rise, unlikely, and it's just kind of mind-blowing in a lot of ways if you know anything about Britain in the late 70s and early 80s. She rises to the commanding heights of academia in America at Harvard University at the Kennedy School of Government. After she leaves there, she ascends into the elite ranks of the American foreign policy establishment. She runs a bunch of stuff related to U.S. and Russia at the Kennedy School. She goes on from there, becomes the director of strategic planning for the Eurasia Foundation, goes on to the Brookings Institution, and then she makes her way directly into government, becomes the national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council, working for the director of national intelligence from 2006 to 2009 under George W. Bush, goes back, does some stuff outside government for a little while, and then, and then, crucially, beginning of 2017, she joins the Trump administration, becomes deputy assistant to President Trump and senior director for European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council as Donald Trump comes into office. Now, Fiona Hill knew that in Donald Trump, we had a very untested, potentially unpredictable, likely tempestuous, almost certainly destabilizing and potentially dangerous president of the United States on the world stage. So she joins the administration kind of self-consciously intending to be a guardrail, someone who could be a stabilizing force, someone who knows what they're doing. And with a lot of other people who came into that administration thinking, ah, we'll see what we get from Trump. How bad could it really be? 
What Fiona Hill's book tells us, and what she talks to us about on the program today, is that it was worse than she could have possibly imagined. And she gets to see up close and learn about elements of Donald Trump's character, his worship of Vladimir Putin and other strongmen around the world, his disrespect for and contempt for democratic values and norms that not only led to the Ukraine scandal and Trump's first impeachment, but led to the coup that Trump and his Confederates attempted between Election Day in November of 2020 and January 6th of 2021. It also makes clear why it is no exaggeration to say that Trump is setting the stage for another attempt to subvert American democracy in 2022 and 2024 if he runs again, which everyone now thinks he will. This time, though, Trump is trying to make sure that the impediments that kept his coup from working are eliminated so that if he has to stage a second coup, this time it will work. Fiona Hill was one of the first people who used the word coup to describe what happened on January 6th. She called it an auto coup. And a lot of people at the time thought she was being hysterical and exaggerating. Now that we know what was going on inside the White House, not just on Capitol Hill on January 6th, what was happening inside the Trump administration, we know that it was even worse than we saw and that what happened at the Capitol was just the sort of public manifestation of a deep and insidious private attempt to steal the 2020 election and keep Donald Trump in office, even though the people of America decided to vote him out. I wanted to talk to Fiona Hill about how it felt to be right about the fact that what we saw in 2020 was, in fact, an auto coup, as she called it. I also wanted to talk to her about her experiences with Trump and why the things that she saw, the things that she learned were so illuminating of his character and his tendencies and why those things are guideposts to what we might see the next time around. But I also wanted to talk to Fiona Hill about the extraordinary biographical tale that she lays out in There Is Nothing For You Here. It's a remarkable story, an unlikely story, and a truly and profoundly inspiring story. And so without further ado, let's take a listen to my conversation with Fiona Hill, a woman who has faced and overcome way more than her share of hell and high water. President Trump, you first. Um, Just now, President Putin denied having anything to do with the election interference in 2016. Every U.S. intelligence agency has concluded that Russia did. What, who, my first question for you, sir, is who do you believe? My people came to me, Dan Coats came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be, but I really do want to see the server. Uh, but I have, uh, I have confidence in both parties. I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. So that's a, a famous, rather infamous moment in uh, our recent history. And we're here on Hell and High Water with Fiona Hill, author of a fantastic must-read new book called There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Fiona, thank you for doing the show. Thanks so much, John. At the moment that that happened, you were deputy assistant to President Trump, senior director for European and Russian affairs on the NSC. For a lot of us, as we watched that, it was a horrifying, humiliating moment of like, oh, everything we feared about Trump and Putin is is right, all of it. And I'm curious what you thought as you sat there in your White House job watching that with responsibility for this, for this area of policy, what your reaction was in the moment and what your reaction is you think about it now. Well, my reaction was very similar to other people watching, although my assessment of why it had transpired was somewhat different. I mean, I was also horrified, humiliated, you know, as I write in the book and I 
said previously in interviews, I actually just wanted to end the whole press conference there and then. I'd never actually wanted the press conference to take place, but that was not my decision to make. And President Trump always loved a good show and a good press conference. It was never one that he would let up. And, you know, I actually contemplated faking a medical emergency during it and falling back into the phalanx of <laughs> photographers and journalists behind me. Jonathan Lemieux had asked the question was just, you know, right behind at that juncture. And I was, you know, kind of a row back in from the National Security Advisor, US Ambassador to Russia, the Secretary of State, they all stiffened. I mean, nobody thought that that was a, that was a good response, let's put it that way. But, I mean, it was really the sum of different kinds of fears than perhaps what people were watching this were contemplating. What this was was an example of Trump's just incredible fragility of his ego, his sort of vulnerability of character. And there's a, an important line in there when he talked about Putin being very strong and powerful. He said, yes. well, I have uh, Vladimir Putin in front of me today. He was very strong and powerful in his uh, denial. And for Trump, everything was about looking strong and powerful. Yeah. And for him, when he gazed at Putin, Putin was what he wanted to be. It wasn't about doing anything for Putin or being in the thrall of Russia or the Russian security services. But he was, in a way, in the thrall of autocrat envy. For him, Putin epitomized everything that he thought a strongman leader, which is what he thought of himself as president of the United States, should be, should be doing. He was, for him, someone who, this is Putin for Trump, super powerful, no checks and balances within his system, right. garnered respect internally in Russia and could pretty much do anything that he wanted, strutted around the world stage with all eyes on him and everybody thinking of him really as a, a global celebrity. Trump also thought he was fabulously rich and running the country as his own business, which is sort of actually a very accurate kind of assessment. Yeah, but this is, of course, what Trump wanted. Yeah. And the other thing is that Trump had these deep insecurities about the 2016 election, which, of course, was intended as a result of the Russian intervention and interference there and the influence operation. They wanted whoever was president who came out of 2016 to have questions raised about their legitimacy, to feel insecure, to be incapable of mounting any kind of collective action against Russia. And Trump, at the back of his mind, was incredibly fearful of Vladimir Putin saying to him, or Vladimir Putin revealing something along the lines of, yeah, hey, we did interfere in the election. Yeah. And we did do it on your behalf. And guess what? We elected you. I mean, this was the worst possible outcome for him. Right. And there was so many things going on. He was looking at Putin. He didn't want to be shown up in, you know, beside his fellow strongman. He did not want to hear that kind of answer. He wanted to deflect against it. And he also, of course, wanted to always put the spotlight back on his enemies. That might be the media in the United States or Hillary Clinton, the Democrats. He was just trying to turn himself essentially into a pretzel, trying to get out of that uncomfortable moment. And everybody who worked with him knew that this would be a disaster. Because as soon as he was asked that question about 2016, that he would react in some, you know, very unfortunate way that would reveal all of his insecurities and his vulnerabilities. And that's exactly what happened. Your analysis about the Russia question is obviously interesting. And it's partly interesting because you've been clear, like you take at face value, the notion that Russia interfered in the 2016 election, as you just said, it interfered on behalf of Donald Trump, tried to install him as president, did things in an active way, all the stuff the intelligence community had unanimous assessment on. And yet you also didn't think that there was some kind of active collusion going on really between the campaign and, and certainly not, as you just suggested, active collusion between Trump and Russia 
while he was in office. I guess I want to ask this question before we talk about that a little bit more, which is, you know, you decided to join the administration and you tell the story in the book of meeting KT McFarland and, and getting kind of drawn in. Given your background, your expertise in Russia, all the work you'd done in and out of government prior to Donald Trump becoming president. And I know you just talk about this in the book, but it raises the kind of question. Russia just interfered in the American election. You know, the intelligence assessment had happened already. He's now president of the United States. And you're thinking, I want to go and work for this man. Why? Well, the point is, I didn't want to go and work for this man. And this is part of our problem with American right. democracy, that over time, the presidency has morphed from the executive branch and as a separate part of the government into a fixation on one person. I mean, if we think back, you know, to previous presidents, we could probably trace this personalization of the presidency, certainly back into the 20th century. But it's become hyper-personalized of late, and certainly it did under Donald Trump. So the whole idea that you can enter into an administration, to a government as a non-partisan person focused on public service and serving the country seems to have sort of disappeared. And I guess, you know, because of the particular attributes of Trump, that's made it, you know, much harder for others to contemplate that because, of course, he's somebody who demands extreme loyalty. And we all remember those early cabinet meetings in which he forced the cabinet members to go through these obsequious displays of kind of right. praising him. General Mattis never did. I mean, there were many people who went into the, the government with a similar mindset of, we're really in trouble here, not just because of Trump's election, as many people were thinking, but because of what the Russians have done and because of all these other vulnerabilities. It's a in a highly dangerous international environment, not to mention what was going on in the domestic politics. And as someone who'd been the national intelligence officer who had worked under both the Bush and the Obama administrations as the person who was bringing in all the all-source information and analysis together, you know, to basically brief the president and other principals in the US government on the Russian challenge, I was pretty acutely aware of all of the dangers. And it was also apparent in watching the campaigns that not just Trump, but many others were at counterintelligence risk. Yeah. Because the Russians were trying to infiltrate other campaigns as well. And this hasn't come out in discussion, even though I've mentioned it many times and many people are aware of it. They were trying to find out if they could get people into the Hillary Clinton campaign. Yeah. They were trying to reach out in the early parts of the primaries before Trump got selected as the main candidate to Mark Rubio, Jeb Bush, and many others. I witnessed some of this myself and you know was calling alarms. I didn't know the full details, obviously, of what the Russians were up to until I actually got into the position. But I knew enough to know that we were in a very dangerous position. And it was also obvious that the Trump campaign were playing dirty, as many other campaigns were as well, and were willing to take, in their case, however, information from any quarter whatsoever, if it helped in pushing Trump's candidates forward, including from Russians. It didn't mean they were directly colluding, but it certainly meant that they were acting in parallel and that they were leaving doors open on every front to basically be manipulated. And as soon as Paul Manafort ended up on the campaign, I mean, that also <laughs> got my attention because I was very well aware of what he'd been doing, you yeah. know, in his consulting, as I have to say many Americans have been doing in these consulting yes. positions. Yes. So that was the motivation to try to do something. I mean, I thought I would be giving some advice on the outside, maybe commenting this, you know, behind the scenes. I was surprised when I was actually asked to physically come in but, you know, after a lot of consultation and consideration, I felt that I had actually, to be honest, no choice. I mean, right. if I wanted to do my duty and also given my background and everything I'd done, I thought I could at least do something. I was perhaps, I would say, naive about <laughs> how possible it was to do something, given all the swirl, the machinations and 
people, you know, involved right. in some cases in and around the White House. Yeah. But I thought, and I still think, that it was really worth a try. As you point out, obviously, it is the case that the presidency has become a fetishized thing, and it's harder and harder, I'd say, in any administration to go in and sort of serve the office rather than serving the individual. You had to know that given Trump's demonstrated propensities for monomania and egomania and narcissism, that those things were not secret by the end of 2016. And you had to know that that secular trend towards the fixation on the man, not the office, was going to be accelerated and it was going to be exaggerated under Trump. And yet the kind of decision you made, it seems like, you know, we talk a lot about the people who turn out to be guardrails within the four years of Trump, people inside the administration who proved to be guardrails. It sounds like you basically entered with very much a guardrail mindset. Like, I understand this is going to be hairy. Probably you underestimated how hairy it was going to be, but that guardrails are going to be necessary in this situation. And I feel a sense of duty to go in and be one. It wasn't like you sort of realized that once you were there, it was like the decision to go in, it sounds like was, I understand this is going to be a very tricky situation, but we need these guardrails and I'm willing to be one in this moment because it's that important. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I had a slightly different image. I thought the house was on fire. And, you know, if I was standing around and the house was on fire, right. a neighbor's house, my own house, I would go in and try to do something. Yeah, right. I mean, some colleagues, a couple have still not spoken to me ever since I did that. They made it very clear that they thought this was a disastrous decision. And I'd be aiding and abetting a criminal enterprise and that I, you know, I'd be forever tainted by it. But I thought, well, so be it. Because, you know, it was one of those moments where you have to kind of stand up and try to do something. And at that point, I was focused on the threats to US democracy from Russia. Yeah, right. And it's, you know, as we've talked around this, and, you know, by Helsinki, it was quite obvious that a lot of the threats were coming from inside, because Trump himself was just so vulnerable. He was actually much worse than I anticipated, to be frank, because I was somewhat agnostic on the fact of whether this was always the real him during the campaign. Yeah. And then, of course, as soon as I got inside, I saw that, in fact, the private and public Trump were pretty much one and the same. And that, you know, he didn't become more presidential as he said he would be right. in that kind of sense once he was in office. Well, and as many people hoped and prayed that he would be, I mean, the office really has changed. There's never been a person who's gone into the presidency in my 30 years of covering this and in all the reading I've ever done about it, which pretty much covers every president that's ever sat in that office. There's never been one that hasn't been changed by the office. That was just an assumption that even if you thought Trump was dangerous and racist. And even if you thought he was a budding autocrat at the extreme end of that, at the end of 2016, now let's remember where people's heads were, there was still discussion. Could he just be a, a kind of nonpartisan deal maker? He had kind of bucked Republican orthodoxy. He might go in and maybe this guy would just be a businessman. And people were praying that that would be true. But everyone assumed that the office would change him, at least on the margins, because the responsibilities are so grave. The pressure is so much. No one's ever been unchanged by the office. And you're basically saying, nope, but uh, office had no effect on him whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had those thoughts as well. And I know that, you know, I've talked to an awful lot of people who had who had voted for him because they thought he was a businessman, because he was yeah. a pragmatic deal maker. They were fed up with the establishment. Yep. They wanted somebody to make change. You know, some of my own relatives voted twice for Obama and then for Trump, because in the same idea that there would be hope, there would be change. He wasn't of the party, he was not a Republican. He wasn't bogged down in all these kind of party politics or previous experiences of government. He would come in with a fresh look. Well, he did come in with a fresh look, but his, the look was from the vantage point of somebody running their own private business. And, you know, in my observations, he very much seemed to be someone who thought he'd acquired the United States, acquired the White House and the Oval Office, you know, and of another of the properties 
on another of the businesses and was going to run it according to the way that he ran things previously. Yeah. And this wasn't from running a government. And he didn't understand what the government institutions did. He wasn't interested in them. You know, he thought, for example, that the whole of the National Security Council was a, a large secretariat, you know, kind of a big office building to push money around. I think he took the title Secretary of State and Secretary of Defence, literally. <laughs> These people were, in fact, <laughs> secretaries of some description. And, you know, the basic thing is once everybody started to work you know, in the cabinet, they became his staff. Everybody was his staff. And his view of the presidency was it was one man above everyone else. And he articulated that very clearly in the public sphere as well. But as I said, he changed the idea of the presidency as much as anything else. It's an incredible thing. And I guess I'm curious about the kind of personal element of this here, you know, which is in the first few months of 2017, you're very quickly confronted with the reality of what this guy is like. And you tell these stories in the book, in particular, the way he treated you. You were talking about how he basically treated Jim Madison and Rex Tillerson as if they were secretaries in some way. Both of them were older white men. You were not an older white man, and you were treated in, in some pretty horrifying ways. I'd love for you just to tell a couple of those stories to give people a sense of what it was like. And we'll talk a little bit more about your history in the next part of the podcast. But you know, you had a very incredible intellectual pedigree inside, outside government, and you walked in there and he treated you as if you were hired help, basically, right? So talk about that. Yeah, well, I, I was nobody. I mean, it wasn't even, you know, perhaps even a walk-on part. It was basically like being the back office. As far as Trump was concerned, even with the senior cabinet officials, everybody was the staff in one of his properties. There was sort of a hierarchy. And people that he didn't know, you know, may as well have been, if you think of a property, you know, the kind of cleaning staff or somebody with a, a walk-on part that he might otherwise not have noticed. So... From the very beginning, he paid no attention to me whatsoever from the very first encounters. The first time when I came into the into the Oval Office, didn't even look up. I was introduced, but it wasn't like he registered. On the second effort where Katie McFarland, who had actually asked me to come on board, and who was Deputy National Security Advisor, somebody who'd been on his campaign and somebody else you know, who knew him fairly well, we came into a meeting Many of the cabinet was sitting there in front of the Oval Office, in front of the Resolute Desk, including the Secretary of State and a number of other people. Katie brings me up to the desk and says, Mr. President, this is Fiona Hill, Dr. Fiona Hill. She's your new senior director for Russia. She's written the most fabulous book on Vladimir Putin. She's the expert. And he sort of looks up, looks at me, looks back down again, and he says, Rex is doing Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Rex being Secretary Tillerson, who yeah. was kind of sitting and looking at me. And of course, I'd met Secretary Tillerson when he was CEO of ExxonMobil yeah. in a you know, very different uh, capacity. Yeah. And he kind of gave me a sort of faint smile and you know, we met eyes. And then that was that. And I said, OK, Rex is doing Russia. But it was also fairly dismissive of Rex at the same time. Yes, but it was I mean... clear that I was not you know, in the same category. And it just went on from there. And then on another occasion, very soon thereafter, he thought I was part of the executive secretariat, you know, to type up some of the meeting. One of the jobs of a, na a national security official as senior director is, in fact, to take notes and to do quite a lot of secretarial work, it has to be said. But again, it was clear he had no idea who I was and nobody reintroduced me and it just went on from there. And so for the entire two and a half years that I'm there, I'm pretty convinced that Trump had no idea who I was in spite of the fact that I was in meeting after meeting after meeting. And something that just kind of proved this is, Recently, when I've been out and about with a new book, 
Yeah. He actually issued a statement. Yeah. It was kind of a very belated job performance review starting <laughs> off the year. Fiona Hill was dreadful at her job, a terrible at her job. Mm. And then actually, in fact, underscoring everything that I'd said that he had no idea who I was, even though I'd been in pictures and all of these meetings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at the very end, then he called me a deep state stiff with a nice accent. Yeah. So, yeah, there was an upside to this, but it just proved the very point that for the most of the time, the man has no idea who is around him, what their functions are, and he doesn't care. And he doesn't think he needs to care. I would say deep state stiff with a nice accent would be a pretty decent epitaph. Like that's not a horrible thing. That's pretty good. Thing. That, not a horrible thing. No, nope. I have it on a t-shirt now. Thanks to my husband who thought it was pretty funny for Halloween. You know, so yeah, <laughs> it's, it's quite good. I just like the fact that according to the book, there's a moment where in one of the stories you tell where he says, hey, darling, are you listening? Are you paying attention? <laughs> That was during the secretarial moment where I didn't realize he was actually speaking to me because it didn't, you know, kind of in the context, it didn't make sense. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have made sense, right? I mean, I imagine in all your time in the White House, you'd never been called darling before. And although I've never worked in the White House, even the press office, I've never been called darling, (laughs) strangely enough. I mean, so that would have been a first uh, for you. It would have been a first for, I would gather, I would guess a lot of women, certainly in the 21st century. Anyway, kind of amazing. Um, Look, we, you know, we started talking about Trump's fetish with Putin and autocrats and strongmen around the world. And I want to discuss your analysis of the 2016 story for a moment as it still proves kind of applicable, right? I mean, George Stephanopoulos does the first major television interview with Christopher Steele out last week. Steele, of course, is the former MI6 British intelligence officer, spy, who famously put together the so-called Steele dossier that laid out a bunch of kind of uncorroborated but damning intel that suggested that Trump's campaign had conspired with the Russians to influence the result of of the presidential election against Hillary Clinton back then. The dossier obviously been a matter of enormous controversy and speculation since it became public in early 2017. I want to play now a little clip of Christopher Steele, whose voice we have long wanted to hear. He talks about the, the Steele dossier a little bit and how it relates to a larger set of issues about Trump's relationship with Russia and about really about Russia in general. So let's listen to that. Most of the world first heard your name about five years ago, but you stayed silent up until now. Why speak out now? I think there are several reasons. I think the first and most important is that the problems we identified back in 2016 haven't gone away and arguably have actually got worse. And I thought it was important to come and set the record straight. So, you know, this documentary that George did is on Hulu now. I have not actually watched the whole thing, but I've seen some of the clips that they put out. That's one of them. And it raises two questions. One, the large question of the Steele dossier itself, and I'm curious about your experience of it, when you first heard of it, how the White House reacted to it, how Trump talked about it internally, and what do we think of it now? Because, you know, there are people, including Chris Steele, who says to George, he still stands by the dossier. He still thinks there was a P-tape from the Ritz in Moscow. He still thinks Michael Cohen went to Prague. He basically still says, yeah, I'll admit that maybe there are some things in the dossier that are false, but I stand by most of it. It was done professionally, and I think most of it's right. And Chris Steele's a serious person, you know? I mean, we would have said Chris Steele was a serious person. It's the only reason why this dossier ever became a big subject in our public debate, because Chris Steele is a serious person and was taken seriously in the world of intelligence before this. So I just am curious what your thoughts are about all of it related to the Steele dossier, but it also connects to the larger question about what we all should take away historically about the Trump campaign and Russia. And do you think in the end that the collusion narrative is fully collapsed, that there's lots of bad things to say about Trump and Russia and the way that Trump looked at Russia, looked at Putin and et cetera, et cetera, and things that Russia did in our democracy. But we can now kind of conclusively say that collusion is a dead deal. 
Right. Well, there's very different layers to this. Yes, First I know. First of all, Chris Steele is a serious person, and he was a very good intelligence officer when he was at MI6, and he was my counterpart for some of the period. But it operates differently in the UK than in the US. I was in charge of analysis, and he was a collector. You know, so somebody who's actually collecting information, raw information, and part of his role was later on in analysis, but it's a sort of like a different role. The second thing is that the Russians, the Soviets, and, you know, people like Putin, who joined the KGB in the 1970s, have been collecting information on any Westerner, any Westerner, who looked like they might reach any prominence on any time that they visited Russia and the Soviet Union. So I was a student in 1987 and 1988 in Russia, the Soviet Union. It was a full surveillance state. Our telephone calls were monitored. Occasionally, people would break in and tell us off for telling our parents there was no food in the stores or food in the cafeterias and threaten us that we wouldn't get phone calls of our parents. We were followed at all times. There was a lady on our corridor and also in our institute, a guy in charge of us who would make a record of every single thing that we did, who we did it with, where we were. They would rifle through our rooms. So I had first-hand experience of that for the very first moment that I sat down on there. So anybody who goes to Russia, the Soviet Union has got a file somewhere particularly if they think that they're going to be of prominence. Strobe Talbot, my old boss at Brookings, tells a story about the very first time he meets with Putin at the end of the Clinton administration, and Putin immediately, you know, kind of drops some things from the dossier because Strobe had spent a lot of time there as a graduate student and written a book on Khrushchev. So let's just make a baseline. Bernie Sanders, Bill Clinton, anybody else who had been, you know, in the mix, Hillary Clinton, because presumably she's been to Russia several times and it was also a candidate. Whoever was a candidate the Russians would have something. So let's just put it out there. Sometimes they say they have things and they don't have things. Yeah. Putin has said about himself, for example, that there are tapes on him. And people go, tapes on Putin. You know, so part of it is the idea that people are going to run out there and get very distracted by all of this stuff and then not be paying attention to what else is happening. So I have said that the dossier was a massive distraction, a rabbit hole. A rabbit hole is a distraction for people to run down. Yeah. Because it started to make everybody think that this was all just about Trump when the Russians were trying to attack our entire presidential campaign. Yep. Absolutely, 100%, Trump was a massive counterintelligence problem. But so, frankly, will be anybody else who has set foot in Russia and has done things that they wouldn't like everybody else to know about. But the other thing about Trump is Trump's done an awful lot of things all over the place that we know are scandalous and outrageous. And we have some tapes, Access Hollywood tapes that we actually know are there anyway. We've heard them and people have talked about them. We also know that he hid his tax returns and it's taken his niece, who's now being sued by him, to reveal all of those. It wasn't the Russians who revealed his IRS returns. There are so many things we could go on and on about Trump. Women who have come forward and said that he sexually assaulted them. I mean, there are so many cases going on here that, I mean, probably for the Russians, it would be a question of, gosh, what have we got that isn't out there anywhere that people are all over the place? And again, if Hillary Clinton had been the president, you can be sure that there would be all kinds of things coming out because they'd already hacked and released her emails to embarrass her in front of, you know, basically the whole world. So my point is, this became a massive distraction and it sucked up an awful lot of oxygen in the media and elsewhere. This, the dossier. Yes, the dossier. Just like the emails as well, because everybody poured all of the content of the emails. Rather than thinking, hang on a second, what are the Russians doing here and why are they doing it? So it became about individuals rather than this full frontal assault on our democracy, on our election system, and on that particular presidential campaign. And we were uniquely vulnerable to that. And one effect that the dossier had was that President Trump then decided the intel community was his enemy because that dossier was 
scoured over by the FBI. It was also kind of basically briefed to him and told him by John Brennan as the head of the CIA. And, you know, just some of those elements were not true. And then he immediately started to feel, from his point, he would know, right? As then everybody was out to get him and everyone was spying on him. And it made it impossible then for the credibility and the trust to be built up with him, with the intel community. It was going to be difficult anyway, a very hard task for people like a, a Gina Haspel or any of his other, well, Pompeo initially, yeah. any of his intel people to be able to brief him. So he becomes convinced, and he's paranoid to start with, that the intel community as a whole are all out to get him. So there's that dimension of it too. It actually made the whole talking to him about Russia 1,000 times worse yeah. than it would have been initially. So, you know, it's fair enough to have all this discussion about all of the elements in there, but I would suspect that a similar dossier could be brought together on a whole host of other major US presidential candidates. And the way that the Russians, because the point is that the Russians look for anything, the Russian Security Service, to manipulate people with and to distract people. And President Putin and the intelligence services are thrilled to bits, basically, that they have been given credit for electing a US president. Right. And one of my most memorable moments was when the Russian ambassador to the United States looked me in the eyes and said, so, are you telling me that the United States has become a banana republic and you think that we really elected your president? I mean, I could go on about this, right. but sure, the, the sure. larger point is that this whole thing has become an absolute massive tragedy and also a distraction, a tragedy because instead of really looking about what the Russians were doing, why they were doing it, who they were doing it to, and a lot of that did eventually come out in the Mueller report and in other yeah. reporting, we started fixating on P-tapes and you know where other elements of that particular dossier were from. We fixated on it just being an attack to use Trump rather than a full attack by the Russians. And then we also became distracted about the reasons for why Trump was elected. Yeah. Because I don't believe that you can really show that the 70,000 votes in several counties in three states, that, you know, Bob Smith, who went out and voted Trump, was swayed by someone from the GRU, from the Russian intelligence services. Yes. I mean, I think you can say that the Russians certainly had an influence. They messed about in all of this. Yeah. But there were deeper currents and deeper problems in the United States polity and society and the economy that the Russians had exploited and taken advantage of, but they were there and were driving the 2016 election. And right. for four plus years, we just thought about what Putin might have done or not done with Trump or what Trump might have done with Putin. It does strike me, though, having read the Mueller report and covered this, that the notion that Trump drove this message in the end, which was no obstruction, no collusion, right? Then the report didn't really say either one of those things. It listed right. a whole bunch of places where he obstructed yes, justice. Yes, exactly. And, and it also kind of said collusion isn't really the issue. Yes, we don't have enough evidence. Bob Mueller said, to prove a criminal conspiracy. But we have a lot of evidence of things that Russia did, and we have a lot of obvious openness of your campaign, Trump's campaign, to accepting that. As you pointed out earlier in our discussion, you know, Trump has managed to simplify this to no collusion. And Mueller sort of helped him in some ways by right. doing that. But it seems to me the broader point still stands, which is that Russia was engaged in the way that it was engaged. We all accept that. And that there was an unusual, I would say, by the standards of any presidential campaign I've ever heard of or covered, there was an unusual degree of receptivity on the part of people around Trump in that campaign to that help. So that thing that every other campaign I know of in the past, if they had been offered dirt in the way that the Trump campaign would, would not have accepted it, would have reported it to the FBI. I think it's kind of missing forest for the trees to get hung up too much on the collusion narrative. And just as you said, in the course of those years you were there, that 
the fact that Trump was not acting on behalf of orders from Vladimir Putin doesn't mean that the things he was doing didn't help Vladimir Putin. That's exactly the point. You've laid it out perfectly, John. That's exactly the issue. And the thing is, we got all hung up. That's what I meant by the dossier being a rabbit hole and, and, you know, a source of distraction because people were so hell-bent on trying to prove or disprove elements of it rather than looking at exactly the points that you said. So if the Mueller report has started from a premise not of being driven by the dossier or the noise about the dossier, for example, or looking just at the issue of collusion in that kind of narrow sense, but it looked about what the Russians had done and started from that premise, I think we would have got to exactly where you say. And it's no doubt whatsoever that Trump was a massive counterintelligence risk. No doubt whatsoever. And I think what we should have been doing was looking for ways in which we can avert that problem in the past, make it very clear that campaigns shouldn't be open to accepting dirt from foreign sources. Although the super PACs are a problem too, because there's so much, I mean, that dossier was paid for, you know, initially by opposition research. And we should be having some soul searching and public discussion about the state of our political campaigns, because it's very easy for the Russians to, which is what they did, draft in behind. It's like one of those pelotons in the Tour de France and they're kind of like coming in <laughs> behind the guy in you know, the yeah. yellow vest and drafting in you yeah. know, to sort of take advantage. And we needed to get them out of our campaigns, but we opened the door to let them in there as well. And Trump was holding the door open. He's like, come on, come on, come on in. With some of those air traffic controller wands going, get in the door, come on. Exactly. I mean, the infamous, you know, where are those emails, Russia? I'd love to see them about Hillary Clinton's emails. I mean, from his perspective, look, he even said it publicly. He didn't see any problem with playing dirty. Right, yeah. And again, that's the nature and the state of our politics. And that's what's undermining our democracy. And the Russians just take advantage of that. Well, we will come back to that discussion uh, a little later on in the podcast, but I want to take a break right now. And when we get back on the other side of this, I want to talk a little bit more about your kind of amazing, extraordinary, and somewhat inspiring background, which takes up a lot of the book. It's not just a story about your time in government. It's a time about your story of how you got from where you started, a place that would not have necessarily been a natural starting point for the journey that led you to the highest levels of the American government when you were born and raised in the north of England. I want to talk about the Fiona Hill bio when we come back at the end of this break here on Helen Highwater with Fiona Hill, author of There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. We'll be right back. And we are back, as promised, with Fiona Hill, author of There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century, which, you know, you're doing a lot of interviews. And people are asking you questions like I just was about Trump and Russia and the state of American democracy. But the book is also about your story. And I want to ask you about this. I'm play a little sound and then I'm going to ask you about what it was that made you think, hey, you know what? I'm going to write a memoir, which is really what the book is, among other things. So let's play this sound. This is Fiona Hill kind of introducing herself to the world on television at the first Trump impeachment hearings in November of 2019. I'm an American by choice, having become a citizen in 2002. I was born in the northeast of England, in the same region that George Washington's ancestors came from. Both my region and my family have deep ties to the United States. When the last of the local mines closed in the 1960s, my father wanted to emigrate to the United States to work in the coal mines in West Virginia and Pennsylvania. But his mother, my grandmother, had been crippled from hard labor and my father couldn't leave. So he stayed in northern England until he died in 2012. My mother still lives in my hometown today. While his dream of emigrating to America was thwarted, my father loved America, its culture, its history, and its role as a beacon of hope for the world. He always wanted someone in the family to make it to the United States. 
you know, no one knew who you were in America until that hearing. And I want to talk about what fame was like for you. But start there. You alluded to it a little bit in the first part of the show about growing up in the north of England and eventually getting to studying Russian and Russia and then eventually getting to the United States. I want to start on the north of England in the you and I are basically the same age. And so children of the Reagan and Thatcher eras, right? Talk a little bit about that because you make an observation in the book about how Thatcher was obviously a revolutionary figure in Britain and changed the society and the economy in many ways for the better, but in some ways planted a bunch of seeds that have kind of led to some bitter harvest as we sit here now in 2021 and the same, I would say, in America. And you make this observation. I'd love you to talk about what it was like growing up there and what you saw and then how it kind of took us to where we are today. Yeah. I mean, what you see and what you experience are two different things, right? Because you start off having experiences, you're just living your life. As you said, you and I kind of children of the the same era. You know, for a long time, you're not really kind of aware that you're part of something larger than yourself. You're just part of your family and you're kind of trucking along until suddenly something jolts you (laughs) into a realisation. I actually describe in the book when I was 13, when I first realised that I was working class, which sounds a bit preposterous because here I am growing up in a mining community. All my family have been miners. My dad had actually lost his job quite a long time before in the mines and had become a hospital porter in the local hospital, really at the very bottom of the economic rung there as a unskilled manual labour. And I never really kind of thought about this in any particular detail because everybody around me was pretty much the same. And then I went on a school exchange to Tübingen in southern Germany that was organised by my entire region. So there were kids from all kinds of different backgrounds and different schools there, including private schools. And the first kind of get-to-know-you session of all the kids who were going to go to uh, Tübingen, I get asked these three questions. Where are you from? I mean, obviously, I was from County Durham, the larger region, but the very specific town. And my hometown of Bishop Auckland was kind of known as being pretty much sort of down at heel, that it had been a pretty prosperous town. But by the time, this was like late 70s, all the industry was starting to close down. And this was, you know, even just before Margaret Thatcher came in, there was kind of long decline because after World War II, in the process of trying to reconstruct the country after the economic devastation of being cut off from the rest of the world for the entirety of the war, British industry was struggling and the private sector owners couldn't rebuild it. So they'd been taken over by the government. So the coal mines had all been nationalised, the steelworks, the shipyards, the railways, it was all British steel or British coal or British this. Well managed, at least in terms of professional managers, but still run by the state. And all of it was kind of falling apart. The second question was, what does your father do? And my dad had been a miner, now was a hospital porter. I mean, he'd gone downwardly mobile rather than upwardly. And the third question is, what school did you go to? And I went to a comprehensive school and one that kind of had a reputation for not being very good, even within the county. And so all these three questions, I immediately discovered that people were looking at me strangely. And some of the girls from private schools in particular would pull back and just not want to pay attention to me. And I realized, hey, I'm part of this kind of blue collar working class. And this means that I have my place and that there's all these expectations about who I am and what I would most likely not do. So that's kind of when you start to see things. Yeah, You've experienced this, you know, it's just part of your life. And then suddenly you start to see that things are not quite what you've been experiencing. There's different vantage points. And I start to then become really attuned to what's happening around me because everything was starting to close. And as Margaret Thatcher came in in 1979 and into the early 80s, 
She tries to privatise the commanding heights of British industry that we're already not doing very well. But she's a revolution. She sees that this needs to be, you know, to cut off the cancer, you know, to sort of heal the body because the heavy industry is just dragging the country down. Things are unprofitable. They're not really well run, even though they've got the technocratic managers. Certainly not for a new modern era where the economy is already changing. You've got technology automation already starting to come in. And Britain is just not competitive. Yeah, And so... She gets into, of course, a huge struggle with organised labour. The north of England is all organised labour and all big industries. In fact, the whole north of England is one big version of the Soviet Union, as I come to see later on, <laughs> in terms of you know smokestack industries and workers and peasants kind of yeah. basically being part of this state-owned enterprise. In that whole period, moving through from middle to high school, pretty much every industry in my town closes down, mass unemployment. And by the time I left school in 1984, trying to think about what to do next, the unemployment crisis is just crippling and 90% of kids who leave school have nothing to go on to and might end up being unemployed for years before they actually find a job. And that's the period where the title of the book comes from, There's Nothing For You Here, yeah. because my dad basically says to me one night as we're kind of walking back, I worked in a local pub to earn some extra money and my dad would come and walk me back after closing time in case I got caught in a fight because lots of people were drowning their sorrows in alcohol. <laughs> and my dad says, well, look, if you're going to go on and do something with your life, you're going to go to college. He was hoping I would. He said, you'll have to go somewhere else to find a job because there's nothing for you here, pet. And it was sort of a feeling in that period of just lack of prospects, lack of yeah. opportunity and just terminal decay and decline. All the popular culture was infused in it. And I mean, you would have had a similar experience depending on where you were growing up in the United States at the same time. Yeah. I write in the book that one of the most famous songs of like 1981 was a song by a group called The Specials called Ghost Town. Yeah. And it's actually in the top 100 of British songs a couple of years ago during kind of COVID. Right. The Guardian voted it number two. It's like exactly wow. the most cheery song yes. in the top 100 of UK hits. And I don't think it was quite such a big hit in the United States, but it was really encapsulating this idea that everyone's town had become like a ghost town. All of you know the shops and everything being closed down. I will say for the record that my preference, if you're going to go down that path, is a town called Malice by the Jam. There you go. If we're going to do that, and I'll tell you also, I was thinking about this just because I know you were on Morning Joe the other day. I was on a podcast with my friend Joe Scarborough, which ended up somehow devolving into a debate that I thought you would appreciate—a debate between the Sex Pistols versus Joy Division. And I was like, do we have to really choose between these? Like, I mean, I was wearing a Joy Division T-shirt at the time, and so I was like, I don't. Do I have to choose? I don't really want to have to verse, but I don't know. What's your view? Joy Division versus Sex Pistols. What was more important in your youth? And I'm asking because you talk about your Doc Martens and ripped jeans in the book. I so. would Say Joy Division because I was a little young for the Sex Pistols. Yeah, I mean, right. I remember obviously the impact that they had, but they were already splitting mm. up by the time I really kind of came yeah. into my music sensibility. But look, that was all indicative. I mean, look, the great music of the 70s and 80s come out of massive decline. Dark. And, you know, the feeling of the culture breaking down, the Sex Pistols, yeah. you know, kind of God Save the Queen, Never Mind the Bollocks. I mean, this is all about the whole culture coming under these stresses and strains from deindustrialization. Because right. the communities that had grown up around all these industries all break down as well. And the hierarchy of British society comes under strain. Well, yes. And you think about, I mean, not to go too far down this path, although we could, all of that sound that comes out of Manchester, basically throughout the entire 80s, I think Joy Division is kind of the spawn for all of that. But all of that is all product of deindustrialization and all of it is the sound of the North, right? And it's working class. I mean, not all of it is. I mean, you know, you have the clash, you know, and others who are like actually pretty aristocratic and you know, yes, 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 all the yes, rest yes. of it. But they were making that great music as well. But most of these big bands yeah. are a working class. And some of them, like the specials, are really revolutionary because they bring in black and white. Sure. 
Brits, you know, in, yeah. in the big cities where you had immigration and racial tensions are starting to rise as well. The early 1980s is the rise of the kind of the white supremacist groups, the skinheads, the British National Party and others. And you start to get racial violence with, with heavy handed policing. It was just all the things that we've been seeing, you know, in the United States as well. Again, I, I really could do, go all day on this because, you know, just ska itself in the introduction of ska and of British music in that era is like what it's all about. But so your dad says, there's nothing here for you, pet. And, you know, there's a lot of people who have their parents say to them, there's nothing here for you. If you're going to make anything of yourself, you got to get out. And those people don't get out. They've got the anvil around their ankles. And yet you're off to the races. You're off in Russia. You've decided that Russia is important. You've decided that this is what you want to study. It's history. It's Russia. You end up in the former Soviet Union. You end up then across the pond at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. On one level, it's just like, wow, what a great story. Rags to riches, not riches, rags to rags to very limited prospects to, to the sky's the limit. Let's put it that way. How do you account for that? What's the thing that sets you apart from I would say 99.9% of your generational peers who were dragged down by circumstance, by economic determinism, by cultural determinism, by a sense of hopelessness in the face of there's nothing for you here, which is what a lot of people heard. And they went, okay, fuck it. I got heroin. You took a different path. And I'm curious what it is that inspired you and led you to where you are now. I think a lot of it was timing and luck, honestly, not just hard work and all the other things that people think is one of the elements of success, but it was also education. In the timing, it's not just the sort of timing of Russia and starting to study Russian against the backdrop of the peak of the Cold War and war scares in the 1980s that were also a major feature of that era of Reagan, Gorbachev and Thatcher. But it's also that the British educational system had opened up in this period. And this is something that I think is important to bear in mind from the United States. The kind of lot of the same pull yourself up by the bootstrap stories in the US are more common up until the 1980s and become less common since then. And this is actually one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book. Yeah. Because I do think that things in your own life experience, the things that you see rather than are just got a feeling and kind of going through the motions of living, can actually put a, a much stronger light on some of the phenomena that we're now contending with. Because the education system in the UK had opened up and it moved from being a more selective educational system in the sense that kids were being sorted at age 11 with an exam called the 11 plus, which I was one of the last cohort to take, and then sent off to either these grammar schools where there might be only two or three paid places each year for kids from the working class. I mean, it was a great opportunity, but it was only two or three kids would get, you know, could girls and boys would get sent on to these grammar schools. It was almost like being a janissary in the Ottoman Empire where the Ottomans used to send around kind of people to all the far-flung provinces yeah. in the Balkans and, you know, where and select a few bright kids, mostly men. The girls would end up in the harem. <laughs> men would be around and brought back and trained to be grand viziers or something like this, you know, eventually. Yeah. I mean, this was the kind of the British grammar school system. No harem, thank God. But, you know, basically <laughs> girls and boys who would be selected on and they might then go on to university. And a lot of the British success stories they kind of see that people would refer to like Harold Wilson, who became a Labour Party right. Prime Minister from Yorkshire. Sure. They'd gone to a grammar school and from there to one of the elite universities. Yeah. The grammar school system had ended when I came along, mm. but the free education principle was still there. And I'd passed yeah. the 11 plus last cohort, done really well. I was offered a place at a private school that they would have paid for, but my parents couldn't even afford the books, the clothes, the bus fare, anything like this. So I didn't go. But I did then get all this support. So if I needed some extra tutoring or I needed to go on a course, and then eventually when I went to college, university, my local education authority paid for it. 
Yeah. And I mean, that is just impossible to contemplate yeah. now. I graduated yes. without any educational debt. And when I went to Harvard, I went on a scholarship. So I was constantly on the track of looking for a scholarship, looking for a grant to let me get ahead. Right. And each time I found one. And that's what I mean about the luck, because I'd have these fortuitous encounters with people. Yeah. So there was opportunity in the system, but you really had to go out and look for it. And I think that that's kind of one of the problems that we have now. Sometimes now there is no opportunity in the system, particularly in the US, because people think that it's not an investment in human capital. It's not an investment in a society as a whole education. It's just a sort of an individual attainment. And I think we've got our heads around that in the wrong way now, because now education is a dividing line for class. And you're much more likely to conceive of yourself, you know, in a, a political terms based on what your education is, how you vote, where you live is all tied to education, the kinds of jobs that you have now in the United States in ways that it wasn't perhaps back in the 1980s. I mentioned the Doc Bards and the torn jeans before. And, you know, you and I not only are the same age, but almost, I think, crossed paths at the Kennedy School. I was there from 1988 to 1990. And I think you kind of started. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we crossed over at least for a year. Yeah. By a little bit. And I read with interest that one of your mentors there said to you, you can't wear those Doc Martens and torn jeans or your career is going to have some problems. They told me the same thing, but I was like, I guess I can't serve in government then. And I stuck with the Doc Martens and the ripped jeans, which is why I ended up (laughs) in this this shitty job that I'm in now. I was like, I I guess that means I'm not going to be working in the White House. Um, Those suits aren't going to work for me. I mean, it propelled you out, right? You came through all of that with all that luck and all that ambition and all that intelligence and had what looked like a great career in the track of public policy, professional, intellectually, high-minded, government service, doing things in and out of government, whether it was Brookings or whether it was doing work at the National Intelligence Council, eventually at the NSA. It's like, this is a career we, we recognize, you know? And the main feature of it, in addition to intellectual rigor, patriotism, and high-mindedness is anonymity. Nobody knows people who do these jobs. That's their lot. But that changed for you, right? And so I just want to ask you this question before we go to break, and I want to get to the future of American democracy on the other side, but I do want to ask you this. You made a huge decision to suddenly become a public person, to step out of the traditional cloak of anonymity, and you became really famous in a way that almost no one who's like in that kind of job does. I'm curious about the thought process, about how you came to the conclusion that you had to step out of the shadows in a way, and what it was like to go through the process of becoming world famous. Not just like a little famous, not like somebody knows you, but people stop you on the street corners famous, and there's like viral hashtags attached to your name famous. Yeah, well, that wasn't initially by choice, because of course it happened as a result of the impeachment of President Trump the first time around. (laughs) So when I was subpoenaed to testify, there was just no question that I was going to testify in my mind. I mean, I'd taken an oath to the Constitution, previously taken an oath of citizenship. So for me, public service was pretty important. I believed in representational government. I wasn't partisan, but I certainly believe in congressional oversight and all of the things that I was working toward. I didn't really think, actually, about what the consequences of this would be. Just it was the right thing to do. It had to be done. There were many of my other colleagues who had stepped forward as well to be fact witnesses in the first impeachment trial and were speaking out. It was only really afterwards, after the impeachment in November of 2019, the public hearings, that I kind of realised the import. And part of it perhaps had been because of my decision to open my opening statement with this personal statement. But the reason that I'd done that was also under duress. Because in October of 2019, I'd been first deposed behind closed doors 
And in all the grilling that I was getting from you know members of the Republican committee, it was very clear that they were trying to cast questions on people's integrity, credibility, patriotism, you know, you name it. And also suggesting that people who served in the US government were from these privileged cliques that we were kind of feeding off as unelected bureaucrats off the American people. And I thought, right, I'm just not having any of this. This is just too much. And especially as an immigrant and as somebody who's, you know, worked so hard to do what I'd done. And I had very strong reasons for why I'd wanted to serve in government to push back against the Russians. And I was deeply disturbed about the fact that national security was just out the window. And this was all just private personal politics and power games that people were playing. I thought, right, I'm just going to lay it out there and just say, this is who I am. And let's right. just cut the crap, frankly. You know? <laughs> and I'm, I'm like nearly pretty much everybody else who was testifying with me. We're all like this with immigrants, people from humble backgrounds. You know, we're not just all born bureaucrats or Brookings fellows. We all have a backstory. Yeah. And some of us actually might have even better backstories than some of the members of Congress. Thank you very much. So that was kind of the reason that I put myself in that opening testimony, just to try to shut up this accusations against who I was and who everybody else was and why we were doing this. But of course, then that took on a life of its own. And then once I'd put myself out there, particularly as we run up to all of the events that led to the second impeachment, as I saw things unfold in 2020, having gone through that you know, first experience, I felt like I had to keep speaking out. I mean, it was that experience that made me want to write the book and try to yeah. explain how we got here. And actually some of the observations that I'd you know, formed over my life, uh, not just my career and being in the UK, Russia and the United States and seeing some of these parallels that we ought to have give us pause. But also the fact that it was very clear from the moment that I testified that the American democracy was in big trouble. And then right. as an American by choice, somebody who's experienced a lot in, you know, I'm going to be 56 shortly, <laughs> 56 years, I want to continue living in the United States. I don't want to be on the border with Canada, you know, with millions of other people <laughs> hoping that they'll let us into Saskatchewan or wherever it is that they might have some free space. You know, I mean, this is worth fighting for. American democracy right. is worth fighting for. And I decided that I'm just going to stand up along with other people and just make my voice heard. Because, you know, we can't just have a system where the two political parties and then, you know, particularly one clique of one run guy are basically saying, no, only we have the right to basically speak up for the United States. And one disturbing thing happened to me just in the summer. I was out in the West with my family and I wanted to take a picture of my daughter out uh, somewhere and there was a big American flag and I told her to go and stand there. And she said, no, mom, I, I don't want to go and stand by the flag. And I said, why not? She said, because it's a symbol of hate. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, it's always at all of these rallies with all these people yelling horrible things about people. I don't want to stand there. I said, this American flag. And I was so hurt and upset by that that I thought, wow, we're really in a, in a state. You know, my daughter's 14. She's very susceptible. She's picking this all up from around. Right. I've never had a conversation with her about this. And I don't think school has either. This is just what she's picking up from, you know, the larger atmosphere and what she's seeing. That is actually a good spot for us to take a break because I do want to talk about that larger atmosphere and the challenges that our democracy is facing, including the aftermath of January 6th. But first, uh, like I said, we need to take a quick break and play some ads. So we'll come back in a moment with the formidable Fiona Hill here on Hell and I Water. And we are back with Fiona Hill here on Hell and High Water. You know, Fiona, we have talked about your past, including your time at the White House under Trump, where you acted as a guardrail within the administration, self-styled guardrail. And now I want to play a clip of someone who wasn't 
really that. It really didn't want to be that, although he ended up, you know, for various reasons, doing the right thing on January 6th. And that would be former Vice President Mike Pence. Now, in retrospect, he's singing a slightly different tune about January 6th. So let's take a listen to what he said just the other day. I know the media wants to distract from the Biden administration's failed agenda by focusing on one day in January. They want to use that one day to try and demean uh, the, the, the character and intentions of 74 million Americans who believed we could be strong again and prosperous again and supported our administration in 2016 and in 2020. You know, there were a lot of Republicans who were incredibly harsh and damning and correctly so about Trump right after January 6th. And then, you know, a few days passed or a few weeks passed and then they changed their tune. And now they're, you know, oh, we got to have Donald Trump. He's got to leave the party. He's a great man. But Mike Pence is just staggering, right? I mean, his life, his family's life on the line on January 6th, people outside the Capitol saying, hang Mike Pence. You know, setting up a noose outside the Capitol, chanting they wanted to kill him, right? And Trump, for a period of time, was egging them on. And now Mike Pence is out there saying, hey, you know, January 6th was just one ordinary day in January. Just, a, you know, just another day in January, your usual kind of winter day in the Capitol. And all you media people are making too much out of this. And why are you guys smearing the good names of millions of Republicans? What a bunch of fucking bullshit. Anyway, look, Fiona, you were among the first people who said immediately in the wake of January 6th, you came out with a piece in Politico. You said, this is an auto coup. You put it in that story. You said it was the only thing you could call it when a president's trying to remain in office and, you know, trying to like use various means and mechanisms to stay after having lost a free and fair election. And now all of a sudden the world is kind of caught up to you and realized a lot of people said, oh, she's exaggerating. She's hyperbolizing. Now it's like, everyone's like, oh yeah, that was an auto coup, obviously. So I guess I'm curious, A, how, you know, how you feel about that, but more importantly, what do you make of what Trump is doing now as you watch him maneuver and watch Republicans around him maneuver their way towards a future that might let some of the stuff that didn't work in 20 maybe work in 2024? Well, that's exactly it. He hasn't learned the lesson that you know some of the Republican senators thought that he would learn in terms of actually ceasing and desisting what he's up to. He's exactly, as you're suggesting there, John, learned lessons about what didn't work for him and what he needs to do better to try to ensure that he's back in power again. And of course, he said he's never left power, at least certainly not legitimately because he's still the president and stop the steal continues. So, I mean, you know, what are we seeing? We're seeing efforts to repress voting, roll back voting rights make it extraordinarily difficult for people who may be opposed to Donald Trump to vote, turning everything into a national referendum on him. It's all just kind of one big popularity contest. Basically make it very clear that congressional Republicans have to take extreme loyalty tests and otherwise they will be kicked out. And I'm sure many of them are thinking, well, I don't really agree with Donald Trump, but better me than some loyalist who is completely on the Trump wagon, so I need to stay and I'll do whatever it takes to stay, even if it looks like I'm basically debasing myself or throwing my principles to the wind, as you know, shockingly we're seeing rather a lot of them doing. And others just simply want to be in power. They can't see themselves in any other position, so they're like Scalise, you know, kind of turning himself into all kinds of knots to try not to accept and affirm that Joe Biden happens to be our legitimately elected president. You know, the efforts to try to oust the impartial, independent, even if they may be, you know, Republican state secretaries. Everything that we're seeing here is a full frontal assault on US democracy. It's still that slow moving in plain sight coup. And it's even more of a coup now because it's coming from the outside. And there are armed elements, militias, you know, January 6th showed all of this. I said, we are right there on that precipice now. We can pull it back. 
But it also will take, you know, others from standing up at the very top there in Congress and the Senate to do so. Right. And, you know, a longtime counterintelligence professional, someone with military background, someone who really knows their shit, who's been looking at this stuff very carefully, said to me the other day that people think January 6th was a failed coup. And, and obviously it was a failed coup in the sense that Donald Trump left office on January 20th. He didn't get to hold on to power. But this counterintelligence professional said that in a lot of ways that January 6th was a huge victory for Trump. He's got these 600 people who've been arrested for what happened on January 6th. And, you know, those people are quote unquote political prisoners that Trump can now talk about and Republicans can now cite. In terms of how Trump talks about what happened that day, he's recasting it not as an insurrection or a riot, but as a moment of patriotism where the real insurrection, the real stolen election was what happened back in November. And these people were just good people who were like wanting to take their country back and stop Democrats from their insurrection. And, you know, these Republicans are saying that people in jail are political prisoners. And then on top of all of that, in maybe the most glaring piece of rhetorical jujitsu, Trump puts out a video about Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was shot and killed. I should say the insurrectionist who was shot and killed at the Capitol. She tried to break through glass in order to, to try to stage this coup. But this is how Trump talks about Ashley Babbitt. I want to play a little bit of the video because it shows what he's doing rhetorically and politically and why it's so dangerous. So let's take a listen to that. It is my great honor to address each of you gathered today to cherish the memory of Ashley Babbitt, a truly incredible person. To Ashley's family and friends, please know that her memory will live on in our hearts for all time. Together we grieve her terrible loss. There was no reason Ashley should have lost her life that day. We must all demand justice for Ashley and her family. So on this solemn occasion, as we celebrate her life, I offer my unwavering support to Ashley's family and call on the Department of Justice to reopen its investigation into her death on January 6th. So that's basically Trump casting Ashley Babbitt, insurrectionist, as hero Mm -hmm. and more than hero as martyr, you know. It's like she died for the cause. That's what that's about, right? That is a move we've seen in other countries. He is using it to inflame the base of his party. He's trying to cast a rallying cry around who killed Ashley Babbitt? Why was she killed? This woman, you know, was just, again, in his light, one of these kind of patriots who's up there trying to fight for America. You have seen, Fiona, the way that authoritarians work and populist movements work in highly divided societies around the world. When you look at these moves by Trump, turning insurrectionists into political prisoners, recasting this woman, Ashley Babbitt, as a martyr. Does that ring familiar chords to you? And, you know, put it in the context of what you see around the world and whether it's correct to say that this is just a page ripped straight out of the playbook of other populist autocrats trying to incite their foot soldiers to set the stage for something that could be not just very dark, but very violent. Absolutely. I mean, you can see this over and over and over again in every authoritarian society, the kind of creation of martyr myths. The Soviet Union had hundreds of them. Modern Russia, you know, has kind of created them as well. And I just want to just make one point here because, I mean, what you said, I just 100% agree with there. After the summit between Biden and Putin at Geneva, where they had their separate press conferences, you know, learning the lesson from Helsinki and the dangers of having a joint press conference, 
Vladimir Putin was asked about human rights abuses in Russia and his clamp down the opposition. He turned it right back at the United States immediately, talking about Black Lives Matter movement because Russia and the Soviet Union have always exploited the United States' racial divisions to cast us in the harshest possible light. And then he also made a reference about January 6th and political prisoners. So exactly honing right in on this. So not only is President Trump and the people around him myth-making and trying to use this for their political purposes, now we have a national security dimension because others will do that too to inflame the situation. So the fact that Putin honed in on that just underscores exactly what you said because this is the authoritarian's prayer book and Putin wants to encourage it. Right. All the better. So Fiona, I want to ask you one last question before we let you go. You were recently on The Circus, my show on Showtime, being interviewed by my friend and colleague, Alex Wagner. And I want to play a quick clip of that interview, although I'll be honest, what you said sort of spooked me. And it's not just because Halloween's approaching. I feel the same way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, I'm an optimistic guy, but you know, there's this underlying kind of sense of dread that I feel kind of all the time right now about where we're going. And I'm not like inclined to be like that. I'm not a scaredy cat. I've never been like one of those people. I've always been the keep calm and carry on type. But look, if you look and see where things are headed, it's all happening here in plain sight right in front of our eyes. And people see it and talk about it and identify it and don't really know what to do about it. And then you made this point in this interview that did not help my impending sense of doom. You said in other interviews, you're like, if Trump wins in 2024 by illegitimate means, democracy is dead. But with Alex, he said something slightly different. And as I said to me, much darker. So let's play that part now. As someone who worked inside the Trump administration, what would it mean if he managed to get back into the White House in 2020? Well, democracy's done. If it's not fair, the next presidency of Trump will be based entirely on a lie. Irrespective of how many millions of people vote for him, they will have been duped and, you know, basically deceived into voting for a lie. The future of America and the future of democracy at large are at stake here. I mean, what I heard there was you saying if Trump runs in 2024 and gets elected, even if he gets elected in a landslide, you know, you didn't use that word, but it seemed kind of implied to me. Your point seems to be that he will have won on the basis of a lie, that lie being the big lie. And if he wins on the basis of the big lie, that even if he won by a really large margin, in some ways, his victory would be democratically illegitimate, given the nature of the big lie that's really very much at the center of the appeal that he's making to voters and to his political persona mm-hmm. as we head towards 2024. Exactly, because everyone will have taken on every lie that he's ever made, because that will be fine. It gets back to some of the things that you said earlier in our discussion about people giving a pass on all kinds of abominations and you know threats to our democracy because they think it kind of the end justifies the means. And that's exactly where we will be, because many of the people who are voting for him believe the lie because it's been given credence by him and people, like you said, like Vice President Pence who that one day in January could have been his last day in January, last day of all of his life, for example. But the fact that they are willing to throw that out and to basically push forward on this basis should be deeply disturbing to everyone. You know, the United States, as I said in my opening statement for me, was it was a beacon. It was a beacon for people around the world. The United States will lose its international standing as well, just to be very clear. Maybe that doesn't matter to a lot of people domestically, But I would argue that for millions and millions of people who came in as immigrants, and most people in America have an immigrant in their background, they will be repudiating all of the things that their ancestors, you know, their, you know, recent 
great-grandparents, parents all came here for, people like me came more recently for. This will not be the land of opportunity. This will be the land of a lie. That sounds like a pretty good place for us to end. Uh, Fiona Hill, I, I swear, you know, if we had more time, the discussions that we would have about British electronica, dance music, all kinds of things. We could spend a day on that alone. Do that for the next podcast and bring some friends. Correct. We'll bring, <laughs> yes. But thank you for taking the time to do the show today. There is nothing for you here. You should have put pet in the title. Well, I actually, uh, I did want to do that, but pet. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing for you here, pet. Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. That's the title it should have had. Fiona Hill's great book. Everyone should read it. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for your service. Thank you for being a guardrail. Thank you for telling the truth. And thank you for coming on Hell and High Water today. It was a delight to meet you and a delight to have a little time together. That's likewise, John. Thanks so much. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Fiona Hill for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 